thank you guys for being here this morning. Um, I think if we were going to talk about somebody who has made it, somebody who's made it, we would talk about someone who occupies a high position of leadership. The CEO of the company, the president of the country, uh, the person in the corner office, and from a secular perspective, from a non-believing perspective, just kind of an everyday life perspective, that's got to be the pinnacle. I mean, you've climbed the ladder, you're at the top. There's nobody who is above you. Now, let's take this individual, the guy in the corner office, and let's throw in the fact that he's also someone who's really wise. So he's not only has authority, has power, has leadership, but he's a wise person. And as football season starts, we would now consider this person a dual threat, quarterback that can run and throw. He not only has authority, but he uses it wisely. Well, we're kind of suspicious, we're dubious about leadership, so maybe we're still not satisfied with this guy's credentials. He's, he's a leader, he's got power, he's wise. Well, let's throw in a little bit of religious devotion, and now you've got a leader superpower. He's got authority, he's got wisdom, and he's got some kind of piety. It sounds remarkably like King Solomon. Yet the thing that's really strange about our, our Bible heroes, we have really bad um, discernment when it comes to figuring out what's going on with our heroes. As a matter of fact, there have been articles in the Christian blogosphere uh, this week talking about why do we take uh, musicians or famous pastors and put them on such a pedestal um, when, when they sometimes struggle with their own discipleship. The truth is, when it comes to our evaluation for evaluating leaders, it's easy to pick on leaders because they're out front. You don't know who all the employees of the corporation is, but it's easy to pick on the the president, our, our ability to discern their credibility is whack. You ever, you ever had an opinion about someone and you found out you were wrong? You ever judged someone too quickly and you found out you didn't use the right criteria? Well, listen, we're continuing in our series talking about how superheroes can't save you, whether that's David or Moses or Abraham, these superheroes of the faith. And the truth is Solomon can't save you either because despite his rank, his wisdom, and his religious passion, uh, we find out at the end of the story that Solomon needs a savior. That's good because if we can admit that Solomon at the pinnacle of whatever he is needs a savior, it should be a little bit easier for humble old you and me to admit that we need one as well. Now, Solomon's story starts off in a superlative fashion. Man, he, he gets out of the gate quick because almost immediately after his um, ascension to the throne, we're told of a very special offering that Solomon makes. Solomon is so grateful for God's grace and provision, and so his sacrifice demonstrates his just gratitude for what God has done. That, that's kind of like what we just tried to do. Some people, when it comes to giving to the church, it just becomes a habit, you know, Whatever I've got in the wallet, which probably isn't much because um, I don't carry cash. You know, maybe I'll give, give God his five, you know. Um, and, and our giving should always be a reflection of a dynamic relationship that we have with God. This is a complete aside, and I'll probably get in trouble for this. But if you always give the same thing every week, then you're probably not thinking about um, giving back to God the right way. There should be times out of gratitude that you give more because you have received more. And so if you've had a really good week, it's not enough just to high-five your buddies. Um, 
It should show in your gratitude and your, your stewardship. So Solomon starts off well. He, he recognizes God's special grace to him, and he makes this incredible sacrifice in 1 Kings chapter 3, demonstrating his special commitment to the Lord. So we find this 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. We're just looking at two verses to kind of get the opening context of this. Here's what the scriptures say. Solomon loved the Lord. Pretty clear. Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father, following uh, David's example and his laws. Verse 3 says this, Solomon loved the Lord walking in his statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and he made offerings at the high places. A little bit of criticism there. Just a little bit of mild criticism. Solomon's great, uh, but he offered sacrifices at the high places. Verse 4, And the king, that is Solomon, went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the the great high place. So Solomon used used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. If you go back to verse 2, we didn't read this. We're kind of looking at selective passages here this morning. It says, The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. If you know anything about your, your Bible history, and as we try to come up with a, a theologically informed way of evaluating these characters in the Scripture, if you know anything about the story, David was the one who, who uh, conquered, finished the conquering of the Promised Land, uh, delivered it from the Philistines and some of the other Canaanite peoples that were there. But because David was a man of bloodshed, he desired to build a house for the Lord. And God said, hey, hey time out. Probably not appropriate for you because you're, you're a bloody man. Let's, let's make this Solomon's job. So David goes, okay, well, whatever I can do in my life to begin to make preparations for Solomon building a house for the Lord, I'm going to do this. However, in verse 3, it says, you know, Solomon loved the Lord. He, he walked righteously, but he offered these on the high places. There's this sense of, of criticism because he uses the high places. So why is there criticism and what are these high places? These high places are very simply public structures. So, you know, um, go to Manchester Meadows and go to that little pavilion that's there in the middle. It's some kind of public structure, typically an altar or a temple, that Israel had taken over from the previous inhabitants of the Promised Land who had dedicated those structures to their pagan gods. Now, the Bible is really clear. We're going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12 here really quickly to see God says specifically when you get in the land, I do not want you to offer sacrifices to me on that filthy altar. I don't care how beautifully constructed it is. I don't care how exquisite the craftsmanship is. That that thing, no matter how beautiful it is, is tainted because it's been used for an inappropriate purpose. And yet, uh, all of the people use this Uh, Not to worship pagan gods, but to worship Yahweh, despite its kind of mixed religious heritage. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, the Lord gives clear instruction about the place and how He wants to be worshipped. Here's what the Scriptures say. Uh, Here's the rules, verse 1, that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to, to, to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Now, this English... So I'm hoping everybody understands what I'm about to read. It's not that complicated. You shall, command, you shall surely destroy all the places 
where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. Places like the high mountains and the hills and every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their Asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Any questions? Pretty clear. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and you shall, and, and to make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Now the criticism is mild because just like construction on Cherry Road, it takes time. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Um, David, in a previous generation, desired to build the temple, and God told him, no, this will be Solomon's job. Now, here's the thing that's really wild. By the time Solomon becomes king, the Israelites have been in the promised land for, anybody want to take a guess? 450 years. So they are, um, I'm going to use a big word here, they are syncretizing their worship. They are putting it all in a pot, and they're worshiping at pagan altars, but worshiping the one true God. In Deuteronomy, before they ever went into the promised land, God says, hey, when you get to the promised land, don't do that. It's kind of like if you have someone come to your house, you know, do you have rules at your house? Anybody, anybody not let people wear shoes in their house? You admit it. Come on. Don't want your carpet getting clean. You just had it cleaned. You know, so you tell people, hey, when you come over, come on in, doors open, just uh, leave, your, leave your shoes in the front hallway. Yeah, there's some instructions when you come in. God gave clear instructions. He says, when you go in, don't do this. Now, the criticism is mild because Solomon's not the king yet, but it has been 450 years. And it's clear by this mild criticism in chapter 3 that I understand why you're offering offerings to Yahweh at the high places, but Solomon, it's about time for you to get to work. Criticism, not devastating, mild. Here's the point. Despite Solomon's great love for God, he seems a little too comfortable taking what the culture gives him. And so he says, all right, God, I know you said don't worship at these pagan altars, but I'm redeeming them by using them for you. Here's a question. Did God tell Solomon to redeem the pagan altars? What did he say to do? obliterate them. And so Solomon thinks it's okay to worship God however he wants. That doesn't sound um, terribly unfamiliar. It it, it doesn't. Um, Have you ever been in a situation where you have been tempted to follow your own desires but still call yourself a follower of God? Here's the deal. Following God is not about following what you want. Following God is an issue of being obedient to Him in what He has clearly stated in His Word. So let me give you you a contemporary example here. And the the question for you to ponder is, what are the high places in your life? What are the ways where you're trying to do the right thing, but you're doing it a wrong way? I mean, God said obliterate it, and you're like, I think I can use it. This seems wise, seems prudent. We live in a day and age where people are constantly trying to explain the Scriptures away. So um, when I went to college... I went to a good Baptist school. I, I thought I'd be safe in a place like that. 
And the problem was they were an incredibly theologically liberal college, and so none of the churches in their area I could go to. Uh, there were men who had written commentaries that said, yeah, all the, the, the first five books, first uh, five chapters of Genesis, it's all mythology. That story about Jonah, don't believe it. It's just like a, it's like a little story kind of teach a point, you know. And the problem is if you reject all the miracles, then how in the world can you be okay with the resurrection? Because if miracles don't happen, if the anti-supernatural is true, then you have no resurrection, which means you have no Christianity. So I, I, I'm forced to choose which of the three churches that don't believe the Bible do I want to worship at. So I would drive an hour Sunday morning, and I wasn't involved the way that I should. College students, this is not an example. But the closest Bible-believing church that I could find was an hour away. So I would go, and I'd go to worship. Didn't get involved in a small group. Didn't really know anybody at the church. Preaching was good. Um, and yet, here's the problem. It's not just our culture that denies the truth of Scripture. Have you ever heard a believer try to use Scripture to justify something that they want to do that God doesn't want them to do? Am I the only one that has ever had this experience? You know, well, you know, I'm just thinking about, I think I'm praying about, you know, <laughs> don't pray about it. Like, that's pretty clear. Like, if you're thinking about murdering someone, don't waste your breath. Dear Father, you know, I just love to run this guy over with my car. Just, you know, have him step out right in front of me. It's just, no, don't pray about it. You don't need to do that. You know, hey, you know, um, my wife's just not meeting my needs anymore. And I think, you know, we have irreconcilable differences. That's funny. You don't find that in the Scripture. You find, serve your wife. Be a leader that she's willing to submit to. Don't, don't make a relationship a throwaway thing. And here's the way that I see this most clearly manifested in our culture today. I know you don't watch the show. Um, I know you don't watch the show. It's, it's a... It's a because it's really not that popular. You, you probably won't even know what TV show I'm, I'm referring to, but there's a TV show where they get typically kind of a, a, a really studly, fine-looking young man or a smoking hot young lady. And, 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 and for that young lady, they have a, a lot of handsome young men. And for that young man, they have a lot of beautiful young women. And it's, um, it's something to do with roses where you kind of compete, all the girls compete with each other to get the guy's affection. Anybody heard of this show? The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. Now, I want to be real careful here because I'm going to use a real-world contemporary illustration, and I don't mean any condemnation by this. But here's the issue. In recent days, one of the contestants, maybe an active contestant, I don't know. I don't know if it's on, if it's off, uh, but you have a, a contestant who is a professing believer who is, um, let me, what would be the right euphemism to use? Hooking up with multiple contestants on the show. And as people have mounted criticism about her being a professing believer, her defense is, hey, so I, I, I mess up. Jesus still loves me. So let me, you know, she's not going to use a Bible passage. She's going to use a kid's song. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I want to go, time out. Is what she said true? Does Jesus love her? This is an easy question. Yes! Absolutely. But when you use Jesus' love as a shield for immorality, my question with this whole episode is not whether Jesus loves her. That's my question. Does she love Jesus enough to obey his word? And clearly she doesn't. And she, the worst part is she feels no conviction about it. And I sit there and I go, how many young ladies um, take their cues for the young lady they want to be from the culture? Listen, parents, um, you might think that bringing them to church every Sunday is going to make sure that your kid grows up great. It doesn't, because there's a cultural influence that has an influence far greater than you think. And so your young ladies may be developing some of their morality, not from watching The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, 
but from the culture at large that says, hey, this is okay, to say, Jesus loves me, so I can do whatever the heck I want. No, no, no. The gospel constrains us to live in obedience. And yet Solomon says, hi, places. I think that's a great opportunity for us to worship. And God says, no. So despite his mixed devotion, you know, I'm going to use the high places, even though you said to destroy him, but I'm going to use them to worship you. Despite his mixed devotion, God sees Solomon's heart in response to Solomon's offering in a most dramatic fashion. Continuing on in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, it says this. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, listen, if God ever spoke to me, I would not have a speech prepared like Solomon does. I would be speechless. I'm like, so you can tell this is a dream. It's not a real life thing. It's a real dream, but it's not like a, a, a flesh and blood appearance. God talks to Solomon and Solomon talks back. I'm like, listen, if you're not supposed to talk back to mama, don't talk back to God, but it's, it's good what he has to say. So God says, hey, what can I give you? Here's what Solomon says. You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and given him a son to sit on his throne to this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made me your servant king in place of, my, of David, my father, even though I'm just a small child and I don't know how to go out or how to come in. I'm inexperienced. And and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people. Too many be numbered or counted for multitude. Please give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. Listen, the movie Aladdin is out for the second time. I don't think any of the music is as good as the first time it came out. Lion King, Aladdin, it's all better the first time. But basically, Solomon gets asked the genie question. Name what you want. What do you want? Ask for anything. Here's my question. If you could request one thing from God right now, what would it be? I want to be six foot tall. Would you waste it on that? What would you ask? Somebody have something you would ask? I'm not, you don't tell me. You thinking about, if you could request one thing from God, what would it be? Here's what I would like to think. I would think if God showed up and as you're walking out the door, he's shaking your hand. He says, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? I would hope like you that I would have some really noble and deeply spiritual response but it probably wouldn't. Most of the time, if you're like me, because I think we sometimes confuse what is deeply spiritual with what is self-satisfying, most of our requests would probably be very personal. Why don't you help me with my finances? Why don't you help me with my health? I got cancer. Why don't you help me with my kids? Why don't you help me with my future? Why don't you help me with my legacy? My, 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 my. Now, listen, some of that's good. I think parents, you need help with the kids. I need help with my kids. But everything is self-referential, mine. 
Here's what's so breathtaking about Solomon's request. There is nothing self-referential. It is, God, you have chosen me to be your leader. Um, I am not prepared for this, so I need your wisdom to govern your people in a way that will glorify you. Completely God-centered and for the benefit of others. And I sit there and I go, would that be the kind of request we would ask for? Let's be honest, how many of you want a million dollars? All right, listen, I want a million dollars. I don't know that that's going to be my request. But it's amazing. Solomon makes this breathtaking request, primarily not in reference to himself, but to God and the people that he has been chosen to lead. Solomon's response to the genie question is for wisdom to be able to lead God's people in a way that glorifies God. Now, God is pleased with this request. I mean, like, there are, you ever, parents, you ever had something like you hope that you're, you're trying to do something special for your kids? And you're like, man, anything you want, man, what do you want? How can, how can daddy make it clear to you that he loves you? And like, you're ready to spare no expense. And they want like a dollar ice cream cone from McDonald's. And you're like, hey, I got off cheap this time. You know, you're ready to do far more. And you're like, okay, I'll give you the dollar ice cream cone. Here you go. Um, God's pleased with this request that Solomon has asked for wisdom. And in, in, in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, explains the rest of what happens here. But in 10 through 14, you see a principle that Jesus said in one verse, that if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, how's the rest of the verse go? All these things shall be added unto you as well. He says, Solomon, you didn't ask for honor. You didn't ask for esteem. You didn't ask for riches. You asked for wisdom. And here's the deal, man. If Solomon would have asked for money, he probably would have proved that he didn't have the character to be able to handle it anyways. He would have squandered it and spent it and been like the prodigal son. But because he asked for wisdom, God knew he could handle money. And so God says, I'm going to give you wealth because you asked for wisdom. So Solomon starts out, well, this young fellow seems to have almost an unlimited upline, and he's going to do great things, we believe. And as the storyline continues, he does. There's good things that happen. Because almost immediately, Solomon does the thing that he is criticized mildly for in chapter 3. They're sacrificing at the high places. David can't build the temple, Solomon is. So, chapter 5, Solomon gets busy in making preparation for the temple. Chapter 5, we're going to look at a few verses here, 3 through 5, 13 through 18. Here's what he says. He, he talks to a neighbor, Hiram, king of Tyre. Hiram, you're in the Bible, buddy. Yeah, woo-woo. There you go. He'll be signing autographs at the back of the sanctuary here um, after the service is over. Uh, Solomon talks to Hiram, a friend of his dad's, who is the king of Tyre, neighboring country. And it says this, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversity, neither is there misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. So verses 13 through 18 kind of talks about this is not the construction this is the preparation. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. And Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. Listen, guys, uh, I'm not good at math. That's a lot of people, 160,000 people in his labor force. 
plus. You've got the 3,300 officers who are in charge. And so there's a whole lot of things that are happening here. It takes um, ultimately four years for him to gather the materials. If you uh, flip over or watch on the screen here, chapter 6, verse 37 and 38, last verses of chapter 6, wrap up the details of the preparation. And here's what it says. In the fourth year, so Solomon's fourth year as king, he's been using all four years to gather supplies. You want to talk about, Scott, you want to talk about getting ready for VBS? Think about four years of preparation and not doing anything except collecting stuff. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Zeev. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bul, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts. So he started in his fourth year. He finished in his eleventh year. And it says he was seven years in building it. Four years to prepare seven years to construct. And so while we noted a mild criticism of Solomon's early sacrifice, we see him faithfully execute his duties as God's chosen leader by building a central place for worship. He got busy. He did his job. And this raises the question, if you could accomplish anything for God, what would it be? If you could do something for God, what would you do? Well, here's a few options. Would you, you know, achieve world peace? Eliminate global hunger? Quell racial strife? We seem to have a little bit of that. These are all good things. But any good thing that is sought without reference to God is not nearly as good as it could be. And by the way, how in the world can you have peace without the Prince of Peace? And how can you control dictators and despots and people who uh, uh, manipulate society. Here's what's crazy. When it comes to world hunger, we have the resources by ourselves. We don't need any other country's help. The United States has the resources now to completely obliterate global hunger. The problem is people don't want to cooperate. We can ship it over there, and because of extortion or politics or armed conflict, instead of that food going to the villagers that it needs to go to, it goes to a warlord who would rather let it spoil and feed, take the bit that he needs for his soldiers than it get where it needs to go to. The problem is not supply and demand. The problem is sin. It prevents everything good that we are capable of doing from finding full fruition. And I think that's why Solomon... When he, when he seeks to have a life mission that he accomplishes, dedicates his efforts and is especially known for religious zeal. He sets up this great administration for Israel and he creates this central place of worship. And so he's not trying to accomplish any kind of just mere social action, but something that has the potential to transform people. And that's the worship of God. He knew that anything worthwhile to be accomplished cannot solely be dependent upon an arm of flesh but needed the arm of the Spirit to move to effect true and lasting change. So they complete the temple. Solomon has accomplished something major for God, and they have a big old worship party. Those are two words Baptists have never used in the same sentence. Worship, party, and yet it was. So chapters 7 through 9 describe how they finish building it up, and as you know, when you are done building, you're not done. Now you got to furnish it. So chapter 7 through 9, describe all the furnishings and the blessing and the dedication. And you sit there and you go, for 480 years, they have been in the promised land and they've been using these high places that they shouldn't use, but David couldn't build it. Solomon was supposed to, and he finally does. You've got almost half a millennium that now they have the opportunity to obey the right way. You're like, dude, Solomon is 
the best. Is there anything, anyone better than Solomon? Surely he's got to be an example of what it means to follow God. He has asked the right, he's asked for the right thing. He's done the right thing. Surely if there is someone that can be of benefit to us, it is Solomon. Yet hidden within the tapestry of the cloth of Solomon's life is this one little strand that sometimes we read his story so quickly that we miss it. And yet this one strand become these incredible warning bells going off from the earliest pages of Solomon's story that warn us of a danger that is yet to come. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 3. We read about that to talk about his initial sacrifice at Gibeon, a thousand burnt offerings, a thousand sacrifices. And we get so overwhelmed by this incredible gift that he gives out of love for God. And so in the midst of this description of his love for God, he loved God enough to make a thousand sacrifices compared to your measly little one. He's doing a thousand. In the midst of these descriptions, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, we hear of another love that does not bode so well for Solomon's future. 1 Kings 3, chapter 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. If you know anything about the Hebrew people, the most unlikely source for any kind of political alliance was Egypt. This is the place where 450 years ago they had been uh, kept in slavery. And Solomon goes and makes a peace treaty with them. And the way that he made a peace treaty with them is... He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Basically, he married her. He married her, a pagan girl, a pagan king, king who in um, Egyptian lore considered himself to be a deity, a god. He goes into a marriage alliance with Pharaoh. Uh, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 7. We read... Chapter 6, verses 37 and 38, talking about the accomplishment of this great temple, four years of preparation, seven years of construction, 11 years in total, uh, seven years to build this incredible temple for the worship of God. And yet in the midst of those seven years of building the temple, chapter 7, verse 1 says, see if you get the irony here, meanwhile, Solomon was building his own house 13 years. Is there anything wrong with having good stuff? Yep, anybody have here have a car that runs? Hopefully. We'll find out in a few minutes. Anybody here have air conditioning in their house? Anybody have a house that you actually like? Nothing wrong. God is the giver of good gifts. Yeah, here's the thing that's really odd. How long did he take to build God's temple? Seven years? How long did he take to build his own house? Thirteen? Almost twice as long to build his own house? Listen, this was not possible, but Solomon back in his day had ESPN and a hot tub. I mean, like, there's not, there's not a furnishing that he didn't have. If, if, if the temple was as incredible and ornate as it was after seven years, what in the world do you think his, his palace looked like? And so here's the deal. They're, they're, we're not questioning Solomon's love for God, but he sure loved himself too maybe even almost twice as much as he loved God. Well, loving himself wasn't the only problem. We already hinted at this in chapter 3, verse 1. He, he loved women. And Solomon's loves for himself and for women 
get him into big trouble, and this proves to be true. What began in chapter 3, verse 1, with marrying Pharaoh's daughter, just one incident, gets multiplied. And guys, I can't even do the math to figure out how much it multiplies. You turn to 1 Kings chapter 11, and um, guys, this is just unbelievable. Here's the guy that has, he has asked the right question, and he has done the right thing. So how in the world does he end up in 1 Kings 11 doing what he's doing? 1 Kings 11, now King Solomon, understatement of the Bible, loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite women, Sidonian women, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung in love to these, despite God's clear warning. He had, not making it up, it's in your Bible, 700 wives. I'm not even going to comment on that. I'm happy with one. One is all I can handle. How do you even, how do you even work 700 out? That's like, you got enough wives for two years, not seeing them twice. It's un, unreal. And in addition to that, uh, 700 wives who were princesses. I'm sure they all thought they were princesses. Um, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. So this man who had asked for the right thing And this man who had dedicated his life to accomplishing something great for God, verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Did you hear that? His heart was not wholly true, which meant what? From Solomon's perspective, he was still pretty okay with God because he was partially true to God. Listen, Yahweh, you you get Shabbat, and all these other gods, they get Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You know, but you, you only specified that you know, the Lord's Day belongs to you. And I am doing that, man, to the letter of the law. I am giving you the Lord's Day. I'm just giving all these other gods the days that they went, want. And it says, So Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then... It wasn't enough for Solomon to worship them. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain just east of Jerusalem, so it would be convenient to get to. And so he did for all of his foreign wives, all 700 of them, who made offerings and sacrificed to their God. I said our discernment for trying to figure out whether people are really good is so messed up because our discernment about ourselves is messed up. You ever graded yourself on a curve? Like if somebody else did what you did, you're like, dang, bro, I can't believe that you did that. But then you turn around and do the same thing. It just, it's a different note in the same song. And you're like, yeah, it's okay. It's cool. It's all right. Like our discernment about our own hearts is, is totally messed up. And And Solomon doesn't even realize this. I mean, the Bible's very clear. No no foreign marriages, because if they serve other gods, they're taboo. Hands off. And no multiple marriages. One woman. Solomon's like the original Lou Bega, you know, the Mambo number five. He's got a little Ammonite on Monday night. He's got a little Midianite on Tuesday night. He's got a little, you know, um, (laughs) some of you now have the song playing in your head. The Solomon 
thousands of years ago. And he doesn't even realize while he is satisfying his carnal pleasures and trying to, the peace that God had given him, he thinks now he is responsible for keeping. Let me tell you this. If God gives you something, are, are you capable of keeping it on your own? No. And he's like, oh, God gave me this peace. So now I got to marry all these women so that I can keep the peace. I think God would have been perfectly capable of keeping the peace without Solomon disobeying in the way that he did. Be real careful about overestimating what you can do for God. And I don't know why he, he did what he did. Because he was wise in so many ways. Maybe he just got proud. Maybe he believed the press about the temple that he built. Man, have you seen this temple? Man, Solomon did really good work. And he breaks his arm, patting himself on the back. But he doesn't expend the effort of actually obeying God anymore. He falls away in dramatic fashion. And it raises this question. If you knew if there was one thing that could ruin you, do you have a clue what it would be? Guys, where you keep your computer and what you do on your computer could be the thing that ruins you. It's, it's fleeting and it's quick. But five minutes can completely destroy your... T- oh, it's not right, man. If I live for God all this time and I make a five-minute mistake? No, 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 no. Because that mistake actually reveals where your heart is, and where your heart is is not with God. Five minutes can ruin 50 years. Like that. Um, wanting attention. Everybody lives for their own 15 minutes of fame. And I'm like, as far as I know, John the Baptist got it right. He must increase and I must decrease. Um, don't, don't waste your time making much of yourself because you're just proving your own insecurities by doing that. Find your security in Christ and not in the accolades of this world. If there was one thing that could ruin you, do you know what it is? What's most sad about this whole story is God specifically warned Solomon about wealth and about women. It, it's all through. He says, listen, when you guys get in the promised land and everything's good for you, you're going to forget me. That's exactly what happened in Solomon's life. And what's crazy is Solomon has all of this great wisdom, and he starts off with this incredible religious fervor, and while both of those things prove really effective for his public projects, that wisdom and that religious devotion never gets applied to his personal life. He got 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a pretty serious uh, lack of judgment. And so at the end of his life, despite his tremendous leadership, renowned wisdom, and incredible wealth, all of these things are no help in his battle against his own sinful heart. And yet we come to church because this sinful heart thing, we believe it, it exists for everybody out there. The sinful hearts, they're not in here. We get dressed up and we, we put some smell good on, we shave, make sure the buttons are lined up, you know, no wrinkles in the jeans, and we come here and we're all good. Hey man, how was your week? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. No, 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 no. If you were good, Jesus would not need to come. His sacrifice would not be possible. You are not good. You, you are as deluded of a sinner as Solomon is. You, you lust for power and for control and for pleasures. And Solomon says, I, I've tried all these things and, and it's a fleeting thing. I never find the satisfaction that I truly want. And Solomon ignores examining his own heart and he has one of the most tragic falls in all of scripture. 
Solomon started off so well, and yet the end of his story is a very clear exclamation mark that Solomon needs a Savior, and so do we. And here's what's awesome about this. The New Testament doesn't talk about Solomon much at all. As a matter of fact, most of the references in the New Testament are simply to uh, the construction of Solomon's temple. And Solomon himself is pretty much forgotten, which I think is a pretty good indication that, that Solomon uh, was not a believer. He gave some signs of it, um, but ultimately his heart was not with God. His heart was more on his own pleasures. And yet, when we talk about wisdom that Solomon had, we have something better than having wisdom. Solomon had wisdom, yet 1 Corinthians 1.24 says this, that Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is wisdom. Solomon just had wisdom. So here's the deal. You're, you're facing a serious temptation. Or maybe it's not a temptation. Maybe you just have a, a serious decision to make. Do I, do I move to Greenville? Do I move to Charleston? Do I take this job? Do I take that job? Do I make this decision? Do I make this decision? It says, let Christ be your wisdom. Which decision is going to help you to obey and honor Christ more? Oh, it doesn't pay as much? Don't care. That's the decision you need to make. Christ is the wisdom of God. We don't just have the opportunity to have wisdom. We get something even more than that. We get Christ himself. When we repent and we turn and we trust, we're not just given an object. We're not just given massive skill at trivial, Bible trivia pursuit. We're given the man who is the embodiment of the wisdom of God. And yet here's what's awesome. Despite Solomon's unfaithfulness to the God that he protested, that he loved so much, the Bible says that Christ is not just the wisdom of God, but in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we're told that Christ is a merciful and faithful high priest, that though he was God, he was made man to identify with us, and specifically, he was tempted, the Bible says, in all ways, just as we were. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus ever um, got drunk, but there was the temptation. It doesn't mean that Jesus ever slept around, but it means that temptation to that kind of lust was present in his life. And yet, while he was tempted, he was without sin so that he could offer himself up as a pure and unblemished sacrifice so that ever put, whoever put their trust in Christ, even someone as profligately unfaithful as Solomon, if they repented and turned in trust, they could be forgiven. Because Christ is merciful and he is faithful and he sympathizes because the entire reason that he came is because our hearts are deceptively wicked. Solomon didn't know that. Why is this man in the world? And yet he did not know his own heart until it was too late. And then by that time, he sold the farm. He would rather have the 700 wives and the 300 concubines than to have God. The question for you today is not so much, you know, what, what are you going to ask? What are you going to do? What's going to ruin you? The question today is whether your evaluation of your own heart agrees with what God says about your heart. Because Christ is of no benefit to you until you agree with God that you're a sinner who needs His grace. And I pray today, listen, whether you consider yourself a religious person, uh, you may be in church every Sunday and, and still not be a Christian. 
Going to church doesn't make you a Christian anymore, and going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. You have to agree with God. And yet, when that happens, it sounds so humbling. Yet, when you agree with God about your sin, you can now agree with God about His solution. Forgiveness of sins and a fullness of life and joy everlasting that comes only in relationship with Christ. You can be like Solomon and you can chase the pleasures of the world and you'll never catch that rabbit. Or you can follow Christ and you can live a life without any regret and you can live to the glory of God. What will you choose? What will you choose? Father, today we ask that you help us to live in accordance with the truth of your word, that you help us to love the right things. Father, it's easy for us to do the right things on the outside and to not love the right things on the inside. So today, Father, I just ask that you do your convicting work to help us examine if what we do, if what we project, if the image that we try to portray is really truly who we are. Father, we're all hypocrites. Uh, Some of us, uh, our hypocrisy is maybe even greater than others. But in our hearts, we're all hypocrites. We don't live as good as we believe. Today, Father, help us to take a step towards exalting Christ, treasuring Christ in our lives so that what we do and what we want match up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.